Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. May 9th marked the start of the bicameral conference to negotiate the House passed USICA and Senate passed Completes Act, both designed to counter China's growing global influence and improve U.S. competitiveness. Brownstein's government relations team sits down to discuss this rarely used political practice, possible roadblocks, the timeline, and the potential effects of a successful or failed conference. Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Today we will be talking about the current bicameral conference that the House and Senate are using reconcile their versions of a bill to increase American competitiveness. This rarely seen political practice is being used to iron out differences in the legislation that is designed to counter China's growing global influence and improve U.S. economic self-reliance. Our conversation today will focus on how we arrived at this point, possible roadblocks in the agreement, the timeline that legislators are working on, and the effects of the success or failure of the conference. I'm your moderator, Zach Fister. I'm a policy director at Brownstein's, and I've been with the firm for eight years. I previously served as senior legislative staffer for several Democratic members of Congress and engaged on behalf of clients across several industry sectors, including agriculture, financial services, healthcare, and homeland security. I'm joined today by three of my wonderful colleagues, Greta Joins, Ari Zimmerman, and Lauren Diekman. Greta served as deputy chief of staff and legislative director for Rep. John Shimkus from Illinois, where she advised House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Communications and Technology, and worked closely with the Energy, Health, Environment, and Economic Subcommittees. She has the expertise in industry altering laws and regulations on data privacy, supply chain security, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, energy, infrastructure, and transportation. Ari spent eight years on Capitol Hill serving as a professional staff member for Republican policymakers, including work on the House Armed Services Committee, the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, and the Homeland Security Appropriations Subcommittee. Ari is deeply familiar with the contemporary national security interests of the United States. And Lauren, who joined Brownstein recently, held previous roles as Senior Director for the U.S.-India Business Council at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and also staffed the State Department's Bureau of African Affairs. Lauren draws on strong relationships with U.S. government, foreign business, and domestic private industry leaders, allowing her to serve as a key advisor for those looking to overcome complicated barriers to entry in South and Central Asia. Great to be here with you all today. Uh, Why don't we just dive right in? Uh, Let's start with the basics on how we got here. Uh, So looking back to the last year, year and a half, I guess almost two years now, Can we start with some of the primary catalysts and inflection points that started the ball rolling on these bills? Uh, Greta, why don't we start with you? Increased focus on uh, Chinese competitiveness, I think, between both parties for a while. Um, You know, the narrative that China is getting ahead of us is certainly something that took off in the telecom space, especially around 5G deployment, and I think expanded to a lot of other areas, Um, you know, whether it be solar cell manufacturing, to automobile manufacturing, to to generally making sure that the U.S. was able to keep up with what China was doing. In terms of chip capacity, um, that became an issue of national security that a lot of members in particular um, on the Senate side have been focusing on for quite some time. And uh, knowing that if China were able to shut down supply of chips, 
it really leaves the United States very vulnerable. So Senator Cornyn, among others, really focused on crafting a bill that would bring more domestic manufacturing of chipsets here to the United States. That was sort of the catalyst behind um, the broader piece of legislation, and I think is really at the core of it, but uh, expanded into you know a much bigger piece of legislation focusing on um, a lot of broader issues and sort of how the U.S. government ultimately deals with competitiveness issues um, broadly. Thanks, Greta. And, th and that's a good point you raised at the end there uh, in terms of the kind of expansion of the of the bill's uh, counterpart in the House uh, over the past year. You know, so last summer, the Senate passed USICA with 69 votes, all Democrats and 19 Republicans. The House didn't take up the bill, but instead proceeded through a more fragmented process of committees marking up respective counterpart bills under their jurisdiction. And then at the end of last year, a handshake agreement uh, to go to conference on the two efforts was made, which resulted in the House compiling all of its various pieces, its bills that it had passed out of committee, some bills that had passed out off the House floor, and then compile them into what became known as the Competes Act. Now, I know there was quite a bit of criticism from House Republicans and uh, some in the bipartisan group of senators who orchestrated the passage of USICA last summer, uh, given the significant number of additional provisions the House countered with. Uh, if you fast forward this to the spring, uh, we are now officially uh, at long last in a conference, uh, which outside of NDAA doesn't happen quite often, as I understand it. Uh, Ari, can you give a brief overview of the of the conference process to that effect? Absolutely. Um, so a conference occurs when the two legislative bodies pass uh, often large and complex pieces of legislation uh, that are very different. And in order for a bill to be signed into law, the House and Senate must pass uh, bills that are have the same uh, HR or Senate bill number or joint resolution number. Uh, and to come to an agreement and hammer out differences between the two pieces of legislation, Congress often engages in what's known as a conference. The House and Senate leadership both appoint in a formal process uh, conferees uh, who are charged with hammering out the differences of the bill um, and committees of jurisdiction often take the lead in finding those differences. Uh, a conference can take uh, a short period of time or a long period of time, just depending on uh, the amount of issues um, that, that need to be tackled um, and the amount of uh, committees often that are involved. But ultimately, uh, the goal is to produce one piece of legislation uh, that can be passed off the House and Senate floor and signed into law by the president. Thanks, Ari. And can we expand on that a minute uh, with respect to the differences between the two bills? Uh, you know, traditionally in a conference, you have you have two bills that are in, in many respects similar. Uh, they have uh, differences that can be overcome and, and you bring them together in a conference and you hash out your differences. I know there was a lot of criticism uh, after the passage of competes that some critics were claiming that the, the two bills were irreconcilable. Obviously, we are now in an official conference, uh, and we will see if uh, what comes to fore there. Uh, but can you can you talk a little bit about the you know some of the differences, some of the similarities of the core components between the Senate and the House legislation? Sure. So I think Zach, at a macro level, the Senate's bill, as you mentioned, passed with sixty nine votes. 
in an open and very bipartisan, what, what can be considered these days a very bipartisan process. Um, the House bill alternatively went through a very partisan process um, and was passed off the House floor with just with all uh, nearly all Democrats voting in support of it and just one uh, Republican vote in support. Um, I think uh, amongst much of the criticism on the Republican side of the aisle of the House bill uh, was the many partisan issues that are included in provisions like the Eagle Act, for instance, uh, which focuses heavily on uh, the need for climate change, uh, provisions within uh, other portions of the bill, such as labor um, and supply chain related provisions. For instance, um, I know one of the main criticisms of the House bill uh, was the fact that it gave billions of dollars towards uh, the United Nations Green Climate Fund uh, and also millions of dollars for things like studying coral reefs. Um, if you are members who are committed to ensuring that Congress can pass legislation aimed at countering China, uh, some ask how these initiatives um, actually go towards those ends. And so I think, Zach, when you, when you look at these very large bills and e each one passed, um, at, at just over 3,000 pages, there are, are many differences between the two, which is why I believe that this conference uh, may take some time. Thanks, Ari. That's, that's very helpful. And Lauren, I know you've spent a good deal of time focusing on the administration in this dynamic. Uh, could, you, could you opine as to where the administration currently stands on this process? I know the, you know, the message from uh, from President Biden and, and, and his leadership team has been send a bill to my desk and I will sign it. Um, obviously, uh, not without conditions. Uh, are, are there any red lines or must haves uh, for this administration to, to sign this bill into law? Yes, the administration, like you said, uh, you know, wants to see a bill. And we heard Secretary Blinken mention that in his recent remarks uh, for his China policy speech. As others on this podcast have mentioned, CHIPS is a hugely important part of this and was a large focus of the president's recent visit to Korea and Japan. Um, however, you know, the administration isn't of one mind on these issues. You have several different players with different priorities. You know, for example, on the tariff review process and others debating on you know, how to leverage that process. Um, I think we've seen, you know, Instead of coming out with a very clear China policy, the administration looking for partnership on, you know, within the Indo-Pacific region, President was just out there, launched the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, convened the Quad Leaders Summit. Um, but we'll wait and see if that's going to be as effective as you know, getting some a clear China policy up. Thanks, Lauren. And do you see, you know, moving forward, moving forward into the summer. Uh, whether they reach their benchmark goals for a conference report or whether it drags uh, later into the year. Uh, what, what role does the administration continue to play in unlocking any potential forthcoming gridlock? Uh, you know, what role will it play in terms of brokering this to fruition? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, broadly we could, we should see more uh, robust engagement from the administration with the Hill, but also internally uh, for their internal negotiations and how they're managing this process. Well, segueing from there, perhaps we can talk a little bit about the current state of play, the process, the timing. Uh, we had a timeline released. I think everyone on the on the call has seen it, no doubt, and a lot of folks in D.C. have been 
parsing through what this means. Uh, some would call it aspirational. Some would call it uh, the need to start somewhere. Uh, in D.C., deadlines are made to be broken. But Ari, I'm curious, you know, with, with the timeline that was recently released, is this realistic? I mean, given that we, we seem to be working in, a, in an environment at the moment that is uh, rife with crisis after crisis, uh, some unforeseeable, uh, some predictable, uh, but Congress still has priorities on the agenda. And I'm curious your thoughts with respect to how leadership outlined their timeline of, for, of events for the next four to six weeks, um, if you could provide some thoughts on that. So the conference calendar that was released uh, was a very common way in which conferences operate. That saying, line staff of each committee within uh, the jurisdiction of provisions that they were assigned, uh, of which nearly every committee in Congress has provisions, the line staff, the professional staff members assigned to each provision had a certain period of time to negotiate and close out provisions within their jurisdiction with their House or, or Senate counterparts. Those issues that could not get resolved got kicked up to the staff directors of committees, uh, then up to the chairs and rankings of the committees, and then finally up to um, House and Senate leadership. This is a very common process used for other conferences, uh, much like the NDEA. The difference being is that the NDEA, the, the majority of the process is only handled within the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. Uh, this is very different. That said, this, this whole process, as the calendar called for, uh, was meant to conclude with a bill printed, signed, sealed, and delivered on June 21st. Uh, if your goal is to get a very large, uh, potentially 3,000-page competitiveness bill with China uh, done by that date, uh, I believe that is highly aspirational in the conversations that we've had. Um, if you have a, a much less lofty of a goal, maybe passing the Appropriations of CHIPS Act funding, maybe with a few other uh, largely agreed upon provisions, that could be more likely. Uh, but again, I think that's up to uh, uh, leaders in Congress like Leader Schumer, uh, of course, the White House and, and what President Biden uh, may want and others. But I think it just depends on your goals, on whether or not you're actually able to meet that deadline or even pass the bill prior to the August recess. Thanks, sorry. I, Greta, I'm going to Turn to you on this one, you know, in a similar vein here, we look down the horizon through the summer. We have appropriations on the horizon. We have the National Defense Authorization Act on the horizon. We've got several weeks of recess followed by the traditional August recess. They come back. We're in crunch time on government funding which no doubt this year will, will present its challenges like other years. Uh, and, and we're staring down the tunnel uh, to a pivotal midterm election. With each passing week, what are the chances that this bill gets done? Does the election play a role in the success of this bill as we get closer to the elections? In your view as a Republican, you know, I, I think a lot of congressional Republicans personally see being tough on China as as being politically valuable to whatever party is pushing that message. So there are a lot of Republicans who, frankly, would rather wait 
and draft their own China bill and move that if they were to take over the majority in either the House or both um, sides of the Capitol um, in January 2023. You know, I, I think there's a lot of discussion among, in particular, some Senate Republicans who are wondering why we would give Joe Biden a big win um, right before the midterms, literally, a, you know, a few weeks. It's it does seem to present a lot of problems. You know, this this certainly can be overcome, though. You know, I mean, as as much as there are political issues here, I think the core belief behind the legislation, which is, you know, obviously maintaining U.S. competitiveness against China, like that's a very bipartisan issue. And so, you know, it, it is certainly possible for you know, some of these issues to be put aside. Will it happen um, before November 8th? That I don't know. But it, it certainly could be something that we make a lot of progress on over the summer. And ultimately, we hold off on sending to the president's desk until after Election Day. But, you know, it's it's hard to know. It's, it's going to be a long summer. It, it is indeed. And as the as one of the Democrats on the phone, I I, I share the sentiment that there are both uh, strong policy arguments with this bill, but also a political benefit to, uh, you know, the, the proponents of the bill. And, and, and obviously it is no question a, a major priority for uh, President Biden, uh, for uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, and for a lot of Democrats who are, are going to be facing challenging uh, election season to come. Um, I, I think that uh, no doubt they would like to have this bill uh, wrapped up before August recess to take that home to their constituents and, and show the work they're doing on this front, no doubt. Uh, I do agree with you, though, that the, the, the closer we get to November, the, the more challenging this will be, if nothing else, not due to political will, but due to uh, the nature of a dwindling number of session days, coupled with the fact that they will indeed have to shift focus at some point in time to must-pass vehicles, uh, whether that's uh, government funding, whether that's uh, flood insurance reauthorization, uh, some of the ACA provisions um, uh, entering into a cliff towards September. Myriad new factors popping up with each passing month, and, and as we previously discussed, some unforeseen. So, Looking forward here, let's say we get to November. There is no bill. The political will in the lame duck has evaporated. If Republicans are successful in taking the House and or the Senate, what does a Republican authored China competitiveness bill look like and in particular, where are the divergences from the current efforts? And I'm curious, would the same, and this is a question for the full group here, would the same Republican leaders from USICA be at the table in drawing up the new bill? Kevin McCarthy and his lieutenants would no doubt play a major role in this uh, in, in January. So I'd like to get some thoughts from you all on, on how would that look? Where would it be stronger? Where would it have more focus? Uh, where would it 
leave things on the cutting room floor that were passed by the Senate or the House previously. In an effort like that, Zach, I think you're right. Kevin McCarthy would absolutely lead an effort. Uh, you'll recall that in 2020, he, along with ranking member at the time of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Mike McCall, led the House China Task Force effort, um, which led to a 200-page report uh, and you know, hundreds of legislative recommendations for what Congress should do um, when tackling and confronting um, the many myriad challenges to all elements of U.S. national power that China presents. I think those that would lead such efforts and future task forces or even committees uh, have called the House product, the American Competes Act, weak on China. I believe that a bill that would emanate from these leaders in, in the House would be much more confrontational towards China. Many more uh, provisions having to deal with sanctions towards China. Many more provisions having to deal with bolstering U.S. military um, might and technology uh, towards China. Uh, banning certain work with China due to, for instance, the genocide that's occurring in, in Xinjiang. And so I think just generally speaking, um, the bill would be would be large, would be very confrontational towards China, and would be one that um, I think Republicans believe that they would be able to score political points with looking towards that would be a presidential election. Thanks, Ari. Uh, Greta, did you have anything to add on that? You know, I think Ari pretty much covered it. You know, I, I, I do think that there's going to be a lot of focus on um, reshoring of American jobs, or reshoring jobs, I should say, that um, a lot of Republicans believe should be American jobs. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how successful, you know, those efforts are and, and ultimately what that looks like. But I do think that one should expect that whatever Republicans put up, I would imagine would be you know, largely more punitive on Chinese interests than potentially what the Democrats or the administration would want. And Lauren, with what Greta just said, I'm curious, how would President Biden and his team in this scenario work with Republicans on, on a renewed effort in the next Congress? I mean, where would they find agreement? Where would they have reticence? And would we find ourselves in a similar scenario next year if the bill doesn't get done this year? I think I agree with, uh, you know, what Greta just said. Um, we could also very likely end up in the same situation uh, next year. But, you know, I think, again, the administration has a few things that they're very focused on, including the chips piece. So that would I see as the main focus. Thanks, Lauren. Well, this has all been very informative and I thank you all for sharing your deep level of wisdom on this, uh, on this effort, uh, on what should be, as Greta said, a very long summer potentially. Uh, I believe that brings us to the conclusion of our conversation today. Uh, thank you for listening to another edition of the Brownstein podcast series. If you have any follow-up questions, as always, please don't hesitate to reach out to the team over here at Brownstein. Thank you, and bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.